If you have your Bibles, Galatians chapter 2, that's where we're going to be, verses 1 through 9. The title is Standing Firm on the Gospel of Grace. We're making our way through the book of Galatians. And today we're going to talk about watershed, a watershed moment that took place in the Bible. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with that term. If not, um, it, watershed refers to a moment, a, a moment in time that marks an important and often historical change. A, a couple examples would be the creation of the smallpox vaccine. They say in the 20th century, somewhere between 300 and 500 million people were killed because of smallpox. So that vaccine was a watershed moment in that it turned the tides of history uh, that, not, that, many, that no one else would, uh, would suffer because of that. In 1436, does anyone remember that date? The printing press? Uh, that was invented, which forever changed uh, just the way people are able to then read books. Uh, the written word was given to more people than had ever experienced it. And so uh, that was um, one of those watershed moments. Another one, one we talked about earlier this year, happened in 1517, October 31st. Anyone remember? Luther, Reformation, there you go. Whew. If you're not familiar with that, go back, listen to the first five sermons we did this year. We looked at the five solas, and, uh, which came about because of the Reformation. In 1517, Martin Luther took his 95 thesis, nailed it on the Wittenberg door in order to start a conversation with the Roman Catholic Church. That led to the Protestant Reformation, which today we are Protestants, and so we live in the wake of that today. There are many, many watershed moments. If you go type in watershed moments on Google, you will get a list of them, and those, uh, those ones I read will be on there also, because that's where I got them. Uh, so today, though, we're going to look at a watershed moment that occurred in the Bible, in God's Word. We've been in Galatians, and in Galatians, there's these people called the Judaizers. These are those who advocate a works-based salvation. And they have come to the Galatian churches, and they are saying, you are not truly saved unless if you are circumcised. You must obey the Old Testament law. They are saying that Paul's gospel of grace is different than the apostles of Jerusalem, like James and Peter and John. He said they preach a gospel of works. This, this Paul, he preaches a false gospel. So what's Paul going to do? He's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to speak to these apostles. And today we're going to find out, what do the apostles of Jerusalem preach? Do they preach a gospel of works? Do they preach a gospel of grace? Is Paul wrong? Are the apostles of Jerusalem wrong? Are the Judaizers wrong? Do Gentiles, which we would all be Gentiles, do we need to be circumcised? Do we need to obey Old Testament law in order to be saved? And that's where we're at today. And remember... For thousands of years, the Jewish people were primarily the people of God. So when Christ comes, and now Jews and Gentiles are saved, becoming the people of God, this is a huge time. It is a new time in history where um, God's people are now defined differently than Old Testament law, than uh, the, geog the geography of where they live. And so this is a big moment. They're working through the implications of the gospel here, and that's what we're going to read in Galatians 2. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to stand. We stand here when we read God's Word. We do so because God's Word comes with His full authority. It comes inspired by God. So we do this to remind ourselves and to honor the Word of God. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then, 
After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. We're going to pray. Father, give us understanding as we come to this text. God, help us to see that this historical situation that took place, this conversation between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles, God, is an amazing conversation that we need to know and understand. Because in this conversation, in this text, God, we see that there is one gospel of grace. And Lord, I pray that we who are here today would see that, would know that, and would love that gospel. And Father, I pray that if anyone who is here that does not know you, has not believed and trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that through your word today and the power of your spirit, that you would give wisdom and understanding this morning. God, we love you. Be with us now. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. We'll make our way through this text. We're going to start out with the presentation of the gospel. We see that in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, Paul goes after 14 years, after his conversion, he's going to head to Jerusalem, and he goes with Barnabas, and he goes to Titus. Now, one thing it's good to understand is, when did he make this visit? Now, at this moment, we're not going to understand something that's probably going to revolutionize our life at now, but it's good to understand God's word when the historical situations took place. In the book of Acts, we're given really the chronology and the historical account of the beginning and the formation of the church. And so, in the book of Acts, we're given four times that Paul goes to Jerusalem. So which time is Peter, or which time is he referring to um, in this, in Galatians? The first time is in Acts chapter 9, 26. This happens shortly after Paul's conversion, and this is probably refers to what Paul said at the end of chapter 1. Remember, he goes to Jerusalem for 15 days and he sees Peter. Um, that's probably that conversation that took place right there. Secondly, in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, Paul and Barnabas, they go to Jerusalem because there's, there's been a famine and they're going to take a gift to Jerusalem and to those in Judea. Uh, so they're going to come and help with a financial gift. Number three, there's Acts 15. This is a famous chapter which we call the Jerusalem Council. It's at this meeting that the apostles come together, the uh, church leaders come together, and many others come together in order to determine do Jews or do Gentiles need to obey 
Old Testament law? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to obey ceremonial laws? And so they gave the official declaration of the church at that meeting. Now, fourth, uh, beginning in Acts 21, we see Paul heads to Jerusalem, uh, where then he will be arrested and then taken to Rome. And so obviously that is not the conversation. So we can kind of rule out the first one, because that takes place shortly after his conversion, which Paul says this is 14 years later. We rule out the last one, because that's when he goes to, to prison. It might seem that this is referring to um, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. However... Most likely not. It probably refers to Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. And I just want to give some reasons, because it's important that as we read God's Word, we understand where it's taking place, and we understand uh, the situation that is taking that, that is there. Um, Paul, here in Galatians, says that he only meets with James, Cephas, and John. Now, Cephas is Peter. Whereas Acts 15, it's a very public meeting. All the apostles, all the church leaders, and it appears a lot of other people are there also. It is the official meeting where really what takes place here in Galatians 2 will then be declared to all churches. Secondly, if Paul refers to the Jerusalem Council, why does he not simply just give the statement that we find in Jerusalem in Acts 15? Because there they will clearly say, no, the, Jew, the Gentiles do not need to adhere to Old Testament ceremonial laws. They do not need to be circumcised. So if that was the case, then Paul simply could have said, no, the Jerusalem apostles and I, we preach the same gospel. At the Jerusalem council, we all decided that no Gentile needs to be circumcised or obey the ceremonial sacrificial laws. But he doesn't do that, which would only make sense if that meeting had already taken place. Third, uh, Paul in Galatians, if you remember, if you've been here, he's been very intentional in showing his limited contact with the apostles. He said, look, I went up and I saw the apostles three years after I was saved. I was with them for 15 days. And then he says, 14 years later, I went again. He's been very careful to show he's had limited contact because he's showing that his gospel he received from Jesus Christ. So if that is the case, um, and if Galatians 2 refers to Acts 15, why then did he not mention the Acts 11 visit also? So again, not really going to change your salvation here at this moment uh, by understanding this, but most likely this visit is Acts chapter 11, where Paul is going to go with Barnabas, in Acts, we don't see that Titus is there too. He's going to take Titus. They're going to take a financial gift to the churches in Judea and Jerusalem, which is probably why in verse 10 of Galatians chapter 2, they say, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So in Acts 11, they're going to go give money for the poor. In Galatians 2.10, they're reminding that we are helping the poor. So uh, most likely the visit is in Acts 11. So now you know chronologically where this takes place. Again, won't change your salvation, but good to understand where things are in God's Word. But why did he make this visit? Now, this is important. Why does he make the visit? We're told he has a revelation, and that's it. So there's really no need to speculate, because we could speculate all we want, but we don't know because it doesn't tell us. But what we do see is that he's going to go to visit the Jerusalem apostles. That's who he refers to in verse 2 as influential. He'll, say, uh, he'll call them pillars a little bit later. 
And he does this, we read at the end of verse 2, because he wants to make sure he was not running in vain. What does he mean by that? Is Paul worried that he's been preaching a wrong gospel? Is he going to go to the apostles in order to validate his gospel message? Well, no, that, that's not the case at all. In chapter 1, Paul has made it abundantly, explicitly clear that he has received the gospel by the risen Jesus Christ. He knows the gospel is true. He knows it's by grace. He's been preaching the gospel for 14 years now. He's not going, hey guys, am I off base at this moment? So what's he concerned about? What's he concerned that he might have been running in vain? Well, the Judaizers have been saying, Paul preaches a different gospel than the apostles in Jerusalem. They claim that Peter and James and John are saying that circumcision is necessary for salvation. The Judaizers are are saying the apostles at Jerusalem proclaim a a gospel of works. Paul foolishly proclaims a gospel of grace. Kind of what it looks like is you ever have two parents uh, saying different things to their kids? You know, one says, hey, you need to make your bed before you go eat breakfast. The other one doesn't. One says, hey, you need to go wash your hands real quick and then come back to the breakfast table. But the other one never makes them wash their hands. One says, hey, before you watch TV, you need to make sure you get your homework done. But the other one never does that. They always communicate different messages. What happens to the kids? There's confusion. They have no idea what to do. Um, That's kind of what's taking place here. Paul is not worried about the certainty of his gospel, but rather he's worried about the fruitfulness of his gospel. See, he's afraid that the Jerusalem apostles might actually be preaching a false gospel. And he doesn't have a cell phone. He's not just going to call him up, hey guys, hey Peter, what you preaching? He's not going to text him, hey guys, do you do grace or works over there? He's not Skyping them, FaceTiming them. He's not emailing them. I mean, there's no conference calls at this moment where he just says, hey, Galatians, let's get together. If you uh, dial this number, 1-800-NUMBER, put in the code. We'll all talk to the Jerusalem apostles at once. We'll solve this right away. Not able to happen. And so what's he going to do? He's going to go there and he's going to talk to them because perhaps the Jerusalem apostles have not actually worked out the implications of the gospel. I mean, remember, this is a new time in history. Prior to this, all those who believe in God did get circumcised they did follow old testament sacrificial ceremonial laws but in christ all of those things have been filled but maybe the jerusalem apostles haven't worked out that implication maybe they're not aware of that if this is the case then there would be two opposing parties that would be hostile to one another both proclaiming to become christian there'd be confusion among the christians One would say we're saved by grace. The other would say, no, we're saved by grace. Or we're saved by works. And they would ridicule one another. They would say, no, you're not really saved until you're sacrificed. The other would say, no, we are saved. You don't need to be circumcised. But both would be claiming to be Christian. And Paul is worried that those who have believed the the gospel of grace might be drawn away into the gospel of works and therefore um, be drawn away from their salvation. This is what's at stake here in in this time in Galatians chapter 2. What's at stake is the health and the unity of the church and the salvation of those who believed in the gospel of grace. And so, and we come into verse 3, 
All of our fears are put to rest, though. We have the confirmation that the gospel is of grace. What is the importance of Titus? Barnabas and Titus are with me, Paul says. Well, Titus is a Gentile Christian. He's not Jewish, meaning he's not circumcised. I mean, he doesn't obey Old Testament ceremonial sacrificial laws. When he brings Titus with him, we're not talking abstract. We're talking, is this guy saved? Will you recognize that Titus is saved or not? Are you going to force him to be circumcised? Or will you believe that based upon his testimony, that he has trusted Jesus Christ by grace through faith in Christ, is he saved? And what do we read at the end of verse 3? But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. See how Paul's, he's a Greek, he's not forced to be circumcised. Paul has not run in vain. The Judaizers are liars. Now don't miss the importance here. If the Jerusalem apostles had been preaching a gospel of works, there would be a massive divide right here in Christianity. Paul would be over here. Peter, James, and John would be over here. Those who follow Paul and those who follow the other apostles. Everyone who believed in the gospel of grace would be ridiculed for not also following the Old Testament law. There would be division. There'd be animosity, and there would be a battle that would surely still exist today. And people today would say, look, you are not saved until you are circumcised or obey these Old Testament laws. But we praise God, there's one gospel of grace. And the apostles in Jerusalem and Paul, they all come together affirming that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, when we go to verses 4 and 5, we understand a little bit more about these Judaizers and how Paul stood against them. The prevention of the false gospels that seek to bring us into slavery. Notice, how does Paul refer to these people who preach a gospel of works? How does he refer to them? Look at that in verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to smile at our freedom. Paul calls them false believers, false brothers, meaning they're not true believers listen anyone who advocates a false or a gospel of works is not a real believer in jesus christ we need to know that because the tv the radio and their internet are all full of people advocating a gospel of works according to scripture these people those who would advocate that type of salvation are not believers listen when we emphasize the necessity of works in order to be saved, we are de-emphasizing the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save us. You can't have both. You either say it's by works, and therefore we don't really need Christ, or it's Christ, and therefore we don't need works. When we say that it's works, we say Jesus is good, we're glad He died, But in reality, we save ourselves. It's our strength and it's our abilities. The gospel of works turns, if we call it, it turns the gold medal of Jesus into a bronze medal and it says, just not good enough. And in fact, that's what it does to us every single day because your best works will continually come under not good enough. And so what is the result of this false teaching? Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 4. So that they might bring us into slavery. Christ has come that we'd be free. Turn to your Bibles. Go to Galatians 5.1, like two pages to the right. 
Depending upon how big you are, or how big your Bible is, not how big you are, uh, it might just be one page. Galatians 5.1, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the debt because of our sin. And he gives us his righteousness. And when we receive his righteousness, we are called sons and daughters of God. We are adopted into his family. We are forgiven. We, are, we share now in the inheritance of Jesus Christ. But work says, no, we must earn our salvation. And so law becomes our taskmaster. taskmaster. And it says, do this, do that, try harder. And with all of our toil, and with all of our sweat, and with all of our tears, we will never move one inch closer to salvation. You see, works will sabotage our joy and our assurance in Christ. Works takes our joy because salvation is no longer a gift, but something you must earn. And because you must earn it, you can't actually earn it. So there's no joy. And it takes our assurance because we're left wondering, have I done enough? Am I good enough? Will God let me in heaven? How much more do I need to do? How much better do I need to be? Have I, have I shared the gospel with enough? Have I served enough? Have I read the Bible enough? Did I pray enough times? Rather than being filled with joy, we are fraught with anxiety. Now today, there's not a lot of people who are advocating for circumcision. That's not usually like the position of works-based gospels. Like if we were one of those churches that, that would do that and they are prevalent, we probably would not be saying, guys, circumcision later today, 5 o'clock, all right? It hasn't happened. Just come on over. It's totally sterile. We'll take care of it. Like that's not normally the practice today. And if it was, I, I don't think it would be very persuasive. Um, but what we do here today, and what we feel today, and you probably feel this at times. I need to read my Bible so much. I must pray so much. I must give X amount of money. And we've often heard things like, you cannot drink, you cannot dance, you cannot have tattoos. And honestly, if it's a gospel of works, don't we want the rules to be very explicit? We don't want vague rules like love your neighbor as yourself and love God. I mean, that's too vague. I want rules. Tell me exactly what time do I need to be home? 4.59, 5 o'clock, what do I drink? How much alcohol? How little alcohol? What is it that we do? We don't want vague things. We don't want just serve your neighbor. We want explicit things. But what we understand is that in God's word, well, those things are not what save us. Now, Bible reading and praying and all those things are good. And we do those because we've been saved in the spirits in this. But we do not do them in order to be saved. And I hope you notice, look, you can work 40 to 50 hours a week. You can raise morally good children. You can be faithful to your spouse, pay your taxes, be a good neighbor, volunteer at the soup kitchen, go on mission trips, take meals to those who are sick, coach all of your children's sports teams, have a perfectly clean, one of those Martha Stewart organized houses, and none of those things will count for your salvation. Not one of them will move you any closer to Christ. None of them will merit you anything in Christ because we're saved by Christ alone by his grace through faith so we need to be like Paul look at verse 5 
To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. We're called to resist all false gospels. We stand against them. We don't give them anything in our lives. Martin Luther said it like this. We can stand the loss of our possessions, our name, our life, and everything else, but we will not let ourselves be deprived of the gospel, our faith in Jesus Christ, and that is that. It's a good, it's a good quote from Martin Luther. Now hear this. In Christ, we're set free from the power of sin, but we still experience the temptation of sin, right? You're free from the power. No longer do you have to sin. Before Christ, all you did was sin. That's all you did. Now, in Christ, we have the ability to now, by His grace, to live for Him, to honor Him, to glorify Him, although we'll still be plagued by temptation. And don't think you won't, because what do we learn later in chapter 2? Peter falls into temptation, and he withdraws from the, Judai- or from the Gentiles and begins only eating with the Judaizers. And we're going to look at that next week. Look, we all know that habits are hard to break, Right? Like habits like uh, chewing with your mouth closed. You ever tell your kids that? Why don't they just learn the first time we tell them? And then they get good for like, you know, lunch. And then dinner they forget again. Or like they do lunch and dinner. And by the time we get back to breakfast, like we're mouth open. Or um, don't pop your knuckles. Don't grind your teeth. You can try to stop doing those things, but they're hard. Stop snacking all day long. You, you, you know, it's hard to break habits so also is no longer trusting in our own works to save us. That's what you did your entire life before you came to know Christ. That's why, read uh, back to verse 5. Or no, verse 4. So that they might bring us into slavery to them. We did not yield in submission. No, I'm sorry, if it's in, I'm reading the wrong one. Galatians 5.1. That's the one. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again. Notice again to the yoke of slavery. Before we come to Christ, we're in a yoke of slavery. We trust in our works. We trust in law. Now, it might not be Old Testament law, but whatever law it is, we are trying to live by it. Christ sets us free that we live for Him, empowered by His grace. But what sin wants to do, it wants to lure us back into slavery. It's like the prisoner who has just been set free and sin is trying to lure him, come back into your jail cell. No, no, you'll find more freedom here in the jail cell. And when we're looking at those lies through the gospel of grace, we see how foolish they are. But our sin nature wants to be lured back into that. So we've been set free from the power of sin, but we still struggle with temptation. But the grace that saved us in Jesus Christ is also the grace that, that sustains us. And we can experience that grace every day through his word. Every day through his word, we experience God's grace that we would stand firm against false gospels. Today, even right now, as we share in fellowship, as we grow in the Bible, as we talk afterwards, we encourage each other with the word, we pray for one another, that's a a means of grace in which we are resisting against false gospels and that we are encouraging one another to stand firm. Like the fellowship of believers, like this isn't an optional thing that the Bible ever looks at. It rather talks about this fellowship right here as necessary for our standing firm. Not because we earn anything, but because this is a way we, we... Um, experience God's grace right here. You loving me with the grace of God. Me loving you with the grace of God. Encouraging one another. Reminding ourselves of the grace that has saved us. 
Now then, as we go into uh, verses 6 through 9, we're going to see two powerful truths that we're going to come to the implications of what Paul is working through here now. And Paul wants to make sure that we see these. He's already given these truths, but now he's going to explicitly give them. And if you read books today, um, oftentimes you'll see things that are in bold or italicized or underlined because the author really wants you to get to know them. This is what verses 6 through 9 are. Just, just pretend that they're bold. In fact, you can take your, your pen and you can circle them. Paul wants us to understand verses 6 through 9. We're going to understand two massive truths here. Um, and I'm going to do it by answering, by asking two questions and answering them. First question, what did the Jerusalem apostles add to Paul? Okay, we see that in verse 6. What did they add to Paul? Verse 6 says, and from those who seem to be influential, that's the apostles, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. Now, Paul's not belittling these guys. When he starts talking about those who seemed influential, although they added nothing to me, the Judaizers have said, look, these Jerusalem apostles, they're amazing. They're awesome. They're the real apostles. Paul, he's nobody. So they've built them up. These are the pillars. These are the influential ones. And so Paul is just simply saying, look, I'm not in awe of these guys. I'm one of them. Okay, I'm an apostle just like they are. So he's not discrediting them. He's not being rude to them. He's just putting it on equal playing ground. These guys, they're no different from me. So he's not, so I know it, it feels weird in our language, I think, when we read this. And it's kind of like, man, Paul's like putting these guys down. He's just leveling out the playing field. These guys are apostles just like I am. And when we come to the end of verse 6, he says, those I say who seemed influential, the apostles, the ones who the Judaizers are saying, these are the greatest people. They're the ones with the real gospel. They added nothing to me. They didn't add anything. The Jerusalem apostles added nothing to the message of Paul. Now, why is that important? Because there's only one gospel of grace. Now, if it had said, they added the this Old Testament circumcision to me. But no, they're not advocating for any Old Testament law in order to be saved by the grace of God. They added nothing to Paul's message of grace, which means there's not two Gospels, three Gospels, or four Gospels, or any number of Gospels. There is one Gospel of grace. And the Jerusalem apostles preach it, and Paul preaches it. And when we come to verse 7, it makes it clear. We see Peter and Paul... They have both been entrusted with the same gospel. We go to verse 8. We see that the same Spirit who worked through Peter also worked through Paul. Look, it says, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Same Spirit. Working through Paul to these people and working Peter to these people over here. So the first truth. There's one gospel of grace. Now, Paul's already emphasized that. He said that in chapter 1. He said it earlier in chapter 2. And now he's just saying bold letters. Guys, they added nothing. There's one gospel of grace. Now, second question. Why is it important about Paul and Peter going to different peoples? Why is that important? Or what is important about Paul and Peter going to different peoples? And I'll give you this truth, and then we'll, we'll see it. The one gospel of grace is sufficient to save people from all nations, languages, and cultures. That's the point that we have here. One gospel saves people from all nations, all languages, and all cultures. Paul has been given a ministry to the Gentiles. 
Peter has ministry to the Jews. Totally different people. There's been a dividing line between Jew and Gentile for thousands of years. And they both go with the exact same gospel. Now, strategies and methods they use will be different. They're going to different people, different cultures, but they will give the same gospel. There's not a gospel for Jews that's different than Gentiles. There's not a gospel for Americans that is different from those who live in China, India, Thailand, Europe, Brazil, Mexico, or even Canada. Because I know we all think Canada's different, but even them, it's the same. This is important. If you compare Christianity in America to Christianity in North Korea, it will look different, right? It's going to look different. We gather in a large building. We have a lot of freedom here to put slides and songs and other things up on, um, up on the screen. We gather, we sing, we're very public. We all drove in public during the day to get here. North Korea, you meet in underground churches. You have portions of the Bible where you memorize them as quickly as you can and pass them off to others. You don't have probably a hundred plus Bibles sitting in the room together. Functionally, we will live and operate very different than believers in other countries and other cultures. And so if we're going to reach people in different cultures, we will have to use different strategies and methods. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Let me read this. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 through 22. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. This is Paul speaking. That I might win more of them. To the Jews, I I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now, he's not changing the message at all. He's just saying, look, I understand if I'm talking to Jews, I want to approach them the way that they'll hear it. If I'm going to go to Gentiles, or if I'm going to go to these people, I want to come to them and approach them in a way that they're going to hear it. If me eating meat, pig, in front of Jews is going to make it so that they will not hear the message, I'm just not going to eat pig in front of them. I'm not going to do that. I want to do whatever it takes so that I can give the message of grace to them. Methods and strategies will change as we go to different cultures, but he preaches the same gospel. And we need to know that. Gentiles need Jesus. Jews need Jesus. North Koreans need Jesus. Muslims need Jesus. Europeans need Jesus. Americans need Jesus. Your neighbor needs Jesus who lives across the street and the one who lives next door to you. This is why we need to make sure we don't divide over the wrong things. We don't divide on the style and uh, the size and style of a building. We don't divide on the style of music, whether we have drums, no drums, a a djembe, bass guitars, lights, whatever else. Now, pyrotechnics, that would be cool, but we don't have that. Um, We don't divide over the color of carpet, the presence or absence of certain programs. We don't divide on the color used in bulletins, the logos of a church, whether the church has pews or chairs. Thank goodness we do not have pews. That's just a weird, strange, ugly word. Come, you want to go sit in the pew? No. No, I don't want to sit in your pew. Um, Which Bible translation we use, those things are all preferential and cultural. It's not that they're not important. We just don't divide over them. We also 
need to be careful on what doctrines we divide over. So many churches have divided on whether we use the gift of tongues or not, or whether they exist on one's baptism, um, whether it's whether you can pedo baptize or credo baptize, baptize children or not baptize children, and I mean like babies, um, on one's position on election or free will, on how one views Christ's return. Eschatology, the study of end times, has been one of the most divisive issues in all of history, or a real fun one, which this is just fun for me. Uh, whether you believe in infralapsarianism or supralapsarianism, I know that's a big one that we're all really wondering about. Um, you can come talk to me about that one later. Now, don't get me wrong. Our views on these things are important. They are important. They will affect the way we read the Bible. And they will greatly affect the way we understand God, who He is. But we need to understand that when we get saved, all of you who are saved probably have different beliefs now than you did right when you got saved, right? You've matured. You've grown. So we don't divide on everything saying, oh, you don't believe this right now. We, we give people time. We work with people. But one thing we gladly and willingly divide over is whether the gospel is a grace in Jesus Christ or works. We gladly divide over that, and we do not lose any sleep on that at all. We will gladly divide on the gospel of grace every day. Someone says, no, look, we believe in the gospel works. That's a different, that's a different gospel. We don't believe that. If you remember, go back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Just look back there. Paul says, if anyone comes to preach to you a gospel contrary than the one you received, let him be accursed. He then says, so I have said to you before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He's saying they'll be damned to hell. He's dividing on the gospel of grace. That's what we divide on every day day and we are willing to do that because life and death hang in the crux there it is not one we play with that's not one we mature into in that type of sense we divide on that now it doesn't mean we don't love those people so don't take that into like we're hostile we still love we want to encourage we want to witness we want to share the gospel but we do not say well if you believe in works and i believe in grace that's okay we're all brothers in christ no we're not in verse 9 we now come to the most powerful handshake in all, of, in all of Scripture. The Jerusalem apostles give the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and Paul. Now this handshake, now think about this. This handshake, which, which represents the fellowship of the, um, the Jerusalem apostles and Paul, it's showing that the apostles fully affirm, support, and encourage Paul to go to the Gentiles just as they go to the Jews. This handshake right here affirms 21 out of the 27 books of the Bible that we have in the New Testament. Do you realize that? Yeah, Peter, James, and John, and Paul. 21 out of 27 books are represented in this handshake. If they don't shake hands, we don't have the New Testament. That's what's at stake here. But they shake hands. They're agreeing with one another. They're saying, yes, we all believe in the gospel of grace. You go to the Gentiles. We will go to the Jews, both preaching the one message of grace. So as, I, as we close, last question. But does it work? Does it really work? Is this one gospel of grace really powerful enough to save people from all tribes, all nations, all languages? If you have your Bibles, flip over to Revelation chapter 7. It's at the end of the book. Revelation 7. 
Brian knows where we're going. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10. This is uh, Christ has returned. Here is a picture of what it looks like when he returns. This is John. He's speaking. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. It works. The gospel of grace works. When Christ returns, there will be a people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language, and they will be gathered around the throne, praising God and the Lamb. It uses the word Lamb to emphasize Jesus was the sacrificial Lamb, the one who came and the one who died on the cross that we'd be forgiven. So when Jesus commissions us at the end of Matthew 28, and he says, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I have taught you. And he says, lo and behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. He's not saying, good luck. I have no idea if this is really going to work. It's not an experiment. But we go with absolute confidence because we already know the end of the story. We know that at the end, There will be a people from every tribe, every language, every nation, every culture. You know what that means? That means that you can go with confidence to your neighbor across the street and next to you, or you can pack your bags and you go to a different country, and you can have absolute confidence there will be people who are saved. You don't know who's going to be saved, but we know there will be people from every nation, every language, every tribe, every culture. The gospel wins. It overcomes every single cultural obstacle. It's the only thing that unites all people from all languages, all cultures. It unites them in Jesus Christ. There's nothing else that unites all people. Christ alone does. And so we can go with confidence. You might say, I have no idea how to reach my Muslim neighbor across the street or my, my Buddhist neighbor next to me. Or why would I ever go down to South America and witness to people? I have nothing in common with them. What do I have to offer them? You have the gospel of grace. And it's the one thing that saves all people. Everyone who believes in Christ will be saved. So we have this text to give us confidence. Paul boldly goes to the Gentiles. Peter and then boldly go to the Jews. Neither knows who will be saved, but they know there will be people saved. And we go in the same confidence. That's why when Calvin Hahn is coming next week and is going to witness or, or share with us his ministry in Cameroon, we're going to see that people in Cameroon are being saved because of the gospel. And one of my hopes coming up in this next year is we're going to form a missions committee because we want to make sure that here at Timberline, we are going outside these walls and witnessing here in this neighborhood, but also that we would have a stronger presence in the global world also on how we are sharing the gospel. So that's one of the things that we're going to be moving forward to. So I encourage you, be praying if God would have you be part of that missions team when we start getting that together and we start saying, where is God taking us? Where would God have us partner regularly that we would regularly send people on a regular basis? I think I said regular a lot there, but I mean it. We're going to regularly go all the time, regularly, in order to share the gospel of grace And we go because we know there will be people saved. It's not because we necessarily have things in common with them, but we have the one thing they need. And it's the one thing every person 
needs. It's the gospel of grace. Let's pray. Our Father, God, I thank you for this text. A text I'm sure that many of us have read, like myself, many times. And we just read it. And maybe we didn't fully understand it, but today, Lord, we know that this text emphasizes It reveals to us that your gospel of grace goes to all people and that one day when you return, there will be a people from every tribe, every language, and they will stand praising you. Father, we praise you because of that. God, by the power of your spirit, may you fill us with absolute boldness that we would go to our neighbors, that we would go across the street, that we would go across our lawns, that we would pack our bags and go to different parts of this country and other countries because we have the gospel we can learn cultures we can learn strategies all those things that we can learn and we can use those things so we can be effective but the one thing that we already know that everyone needs is the gospel of grace God may we be a church who loves to share that gospel God may you move us by the power of your spirit by your love by your grace that we would not be content in only reading about the Bible and only reading about your love and your grace and only studying it but that we would because your spirit is moving us empowering us and leading us to share the gospel with others and may we do so with humility with great confidence knowing you will save thank you God that you save thank you that the gospel of grace thank you that you don't tell us that we have to aimlessly and vainlessly try to earn it. But you have done everything for us. And may we never forget that truth. In your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. We do questions at the end of sermons. You can always text your question in. And we just try to answer a couple of them. Uh, you said that those who teach a false gospel are not saved. If we start believing a false gospel, does that mean we are not saved? It's a good question. Um, it's so hard to say, you know, is someone saved or so not saved? Uh, that's based upon your, your testimony of Jesus Christ. Um, what we know is that the Bible never speaks of our assurance and our salvation as looking back at a point in time. The Bible always speaks of our assurance and our salvation as do you believe in Jesus Christ? It always speaks presently. Do you believe? Are you persevering? Um, and so... Uh, so that's why we always want to look at that. Are we believing in Jesus Christ and by his grace? Um, Peter, in chapter 2, 11, um, was be- falling prey to a false gospel. Paul rebukes him, and he says, um, Peter came and stood condemned. So that's pretty tough language. Paul says Peter's condemned. Paul, Peter's an apostle of Christ, walked with him. Peter's saying, or Paul's saying, he was condemned if he's going to walk this way. And so um, I think the danger is we're not to think we're immune to false gospels. We are in our walk with God probably going to fluctuate at times. We're all going to stumble. We're all going to do like what Galatians 5.1 says, stand for him therefore and do not fall back again into a yoke of slavery. We're going to fall back at times. All of a sudden we're going to be looking at, why am I so anxious? Oh, it's because I think I can earn my salvation. It's because I haven't done this or done this. And so we need to regularly encourage ourselves there. But if we were to totally leave the gospel and totally believe a false gospel. I would not say you lost your salvation, but it would be that you were never saved at that point. Um, that, and that's how I believe the text, the, the God's scripture speaks of that. Because remember, when God's grace comes upon us, it awakens us, it makes us alive, gives us the son, or gives us the spirit that we'd be adopted and called sons of God. Adoption is not 
um, a part-time thing. It's permanent. We adopted our son, Caleb. He was permanently a part of our family. If he says, Dad, I don't feel like being your son today. Great, you're still my son. So uh, we still have those times even in our Christian life. Uh, So that's a good question, one to wrestle with. Uh, But the Bible always talks about where we currently are. Are we trusting in Christ? Um, Secondly, my neighbors are of a different nationality. I have nothing in common with them. How do I share the gospel with them? Get to know them? That'd be the first thing. I would say just get to know your neighbors. If they make you take off your shoes when you come inside, take off your shoes. If you have to do weird things when you go inside, do weird things. If they don't drink coffee and they only drink tea, they shouldn't be in Washington for one, but that's okay. Uh, It's okay. Drink tea. Just grit it. Um, You know, like Paul says, I do all things. Whatever it takes to the Jews, to the Jews, to the Gentiles. He doesn't compromise on doctrine. He doesn't compromise on gospel. But he compromises on whether he drinks tea or eats pig or other things like that. Whatever it takes to get to know the neighbors. If they're doing yard work, go do yard work with them. Begin to understand who they are. Grow in love with them and share the gospel with them. Um, and so that's why I'd say just get to know your neighbors. Um, but don't think that you have to get to know them really well before you share the gospel. I think that's a danger. We kind of say, well, I don't really know them enough. Um, let the gospel flow out of you from day one. If they say they're struggling on something, hey, can I pray with you about that? If they say, hey, you want to come over on Sunday? Well, I'll be with my church from 9 to 12 or whatever time we meet. Um, but, you know, later in the day after that, I can do that. Or would you like to come to service with me? Let gospel language be, every part, be part of your everyday life. Don't let it be reserved. Don't hide the words prayer, Bible, Jesus, church don't hide those words from them let them know let it be something that rolls just out of your life and that they see that and they go wow this person he's always talking about this and the crazy thing is he's really loving too and he's really nice and he's always willing to help and he keeps sharing this gospel with me now to some it'll smell good to them and they'll want to know more and of course in first corinthians to some it's a, it's a repugnant aroma, and they don't want more. And so, uh, but share the gospel with them. So that's a good question, and, but get to know your neighbors. I'm going to pray, and then, and then that's it? Okay, so that's it. Always got to double, double, double check. Uh, Father, we thank you for today. Thank you that your grace is sufficient. Thank you that your gospel is sufficient. Lord, I pray that everyone here, that we would love to grow in the knowledge of your, uh, knowledge of your word every day so that we would just grow in that grace and understand the love that you have for us, understand your son, Jesus Christ, that we would be more emboldened by the gospel, that we would have just your spirit in us, increasingly making us more bold, that we would desire more and more to share the gospel with those who are around us. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up people in this room and you would send us to other parts of the world for short-term missions and long-term missions, God. God, send us. Send us out into this world that we would share the gospel, knowing that you save. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. Have a wonderful day.